Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. We've got a challenge because we have not made the principalship important enough for people to stay. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a great education, no matter what their background. For most of the last two seasons, Tanji and I have been talking with educators we know are thoughtful to hear how they are meeting the unprecedented challenge of educating children during the twin crises of a worldwide pandemic and a national reckoning over deeply entrenched racial injustice. We recently expanded a bit to talk about reading instruction, a conversation we, we will return to next week. But if you're a regular listener, you may have noticed a theme that has emerged in this podcast, which is school leaders are enormously important to whether schools function well and children learn a lot. This may seem sort of obvious, particularly to teachers who have long understood that principals can make or break a school. But it has not always been obvious to researchers and the broad group of people known as ed reformers. In 2004, researchers Kenneth Leithwood, Karen Seashore Lewis, Stephen Anderson, and Kyla Wallstrom were commissioned by the Wallace Foundation to gather together the research that was available on school leaders. They declared that the research demonstrated that principals not only had a measurable effect on student learning, but that of all the in-school effects, principals were second only to teachers. This was a major finding at the time. Since then, there's been a lot of research and thinking about principles, and the Wallace Foundation commissioned a new set of scholars to review the state of the principalship. They issued their report in February, and we've brought together an amazing panel to talk about what they have found. By the way, I'll link to the report in the show notes. We have on this episode Annette Campbell-Anderson, Deputy Director of the Center for Safe and Healthy Schools at Johns Hopkins University and an assistant professor at its School of Education. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. Thank you. We also have Richard Gonzalez, a, an associate professor at the University of Connecticut's Neeg School of Education. He currently serves as director of educational leadership preparation programs and leads the university's principal preparation initiative, a project funded by the Wallace Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Welcome, Dr. Gonzalez. Pleasure to be here. And, and Steve Tozer, Professor Emeritus and Founding Director of the Center for Urban Education Leadership at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Tozer. Thank you, Karen. All of our guests have spent their professional lives trying to improve schools as teachers, administrators, and in colleges of education. And we brought them here together to reflect on what this new synthesis of research tells us why it's important, and what we can do to move forward with this knowledge. Dr. Tozer, uh, longtime listeners will recognize you from previous episodes. I think at this point you qualify as a friend of the podcast. I wonder if you could quickly describe this new report from the Wallace Foundation. And before you do, I should just say it was written by Jason Grissom of Vanderbilt University, Anna E. Galate at North Carolina State University and Constance Lindsay of, Un of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So Dr. Tozer, that is a lot of research firepower. So what did they find and why is it important? Um, let me start out by uh, uh, saying thank you, uh, Karen, and, and thanks to the whole panel for um, all of us coming together today. Uh, it, it's, I'm looking forward to how we uh, respond to this important study. I'll start by saying, reminding us of the title, How Principles Affect Students in Schools, a Systemic Synthesis of Two Decades of Research. What the authors point out to us is we've got a whole lot more research on what's been going on with uh, school leadership and its impact on schools than we had 20 years ago. 
And so uh, part of what they're doing is opening a window to an understanding of what all of that research amounts to. Um, you rightly use the Leithwood study of 2004 as kind of a springboard for this. The authors do the same thing. Um, in their executive summary, they list seven key findings, and you asked for a brief response. Um, it's hard to do justice to, uh, to this report with a brief response. I'll just uh, offer a few highlights from the key findings. The very first and possibly most important one is that effective principles are at least as important for student achievement as previous port reports have concluded. And in fact, their importance may not have been stated strongly enough. Um, they then go on to talk about the fact that principles have important impacts, not just on student learning, but on the entire environment of the school that affects student learning. School culture and climate have impact on student learning. Um, uh, teachers have an impact on student learning and, um, and principals have an impact on them. They also point out that principals have an impact on such things as student attendance, um, things that we ordinarily think, oh, well, those are, those are the parents' purview. But what they're pointing to is that principals have a, a very, at their best, have a very important holistic effect on the school culture and climate and community. Um, and they also point out, therefore, that principals can be powerful agents of equity, um, that, that principal impact is actually more important in our lowest performing schools or the schools that are in the most under-resourced neighborhoods. Um, but that the downside of that is that effective principles are not equitably distributed across schools. We don't have an even distribution of really outstanding principles. Uh, and uh, this, again, can have a negative impact on, on our concerns about equity. Uh, finally, uh, they, their sign off is, we still don't have enough research on all of this. There's a whole lot more research that can be conducted, but certainly this is a major, major contribution to helping us understand what the last 20 years of research really amount to. So I'll stop there. I, uh, one of the things that um, Dr. Tozer just said that really made me think of uh, pre our previous conversation, Dr. Anderson, is this idea that not only do uh, principles have an effect on student achievement, but on the whole atmosphere, the whole culture of a school. And what I have observed is that those things really go together. I mean, you really, in order to get to the point where a school, particularly a school that serves um, children who live in poverty, to get to the point of them having high uh, academic achievement, you have to be doing everything right. You have to be, you know, having a good culture and so forth. Um, so, so what I would say to that is that, you know, Dr. Tozer is absolutely right that principles are critical to setting the culture of the school. Um, one of the things that we have long known, but this research just backs up, is that you know, teachers buy into what the principal is selling. And if the teachers don't, then the teachers will leave. And so that's also a critical piece of this whole school culture conversation, because as we know, teachers don't leave a school. They often leave a principal. So it's really important for us to get this principal and teaching staff ratio correct in terms of the style, in terms of the intention, in terms of the approach, because when that teamwork is collaborative, that's when the school is able to show its most effective growth. And I think that that's what this research is really starting to back up. On the other hand, what we know is happening very often in some of our schools that are more under-resourced is that there is a revolving door because you can't get the principal and the staff on the same page in many instances. And it creates a friction when the principal is trying to drive a certain culture into the school and that is not aligned with how the teachers feel. So it's really important that there be more alignment between the principal's vision and how they're interpreting the mission of the school and then how that is connecting to these broader elements of how staff is buying in to the plan to move the school forward. But, but also I would just like push back just a tiny bit because I think one thing that happens in schools a lot is principal comes in, I have a vision, everything changes, new principal comes in, I have a vision. Instead of connecting with previous work, instead of really like digging in and saying, well, this is working in the school. Why don't we, why don't we do more of what's working and less of what's not working? Um, just because 
that churn is so um, harmful to schools, it seems to me. I would just quickly respond before the other panelists weigh in that I think we have painted a picture of the principal as superhero. And so because we have made every principal responsible for saving the school, they feel this obligation and this burden to go in and quickly turn everything around. I think that what's much more nuanced, though, in, the, in a proper response is a principal going in and having a listening mode, thinking and listening listening to the staff, listening to the families, listening to the students about what has been working before there is a major shift and change. And that is important, again, to get buy-in down the road. We know that most principals only right now have uh, less than seven years of experience. And so it's really become a challenge in order for us to get experienced principals who even know how to go into a school with a listening mode. But it's really important that we start to train aspiring leaders to listen before they leave. And Tanji, I think you you have a question you want to ask. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, we think about how the landscape of principles and, and what they look like, right? So we know the vast majority of principles in our country are white and most of them are female. And as you begin to think about what that means regarding students of color, particularly black students, we have to have a conversation about how we got here. And so, you know, that didn't just happen out of nowhere. So the question I have is, how do we understand the historical context of why and how the principalship became predominantly white in our country? And I think Dr. Gonzalez might be uh, poised to answer. Whoever would love to, to jump in and help us with that. Certainly, um, certainly keeping Black children uh, in mind. But I think the report also points out that where we're losing ground in terms of representation is with the Latino educators and the Latino student population. And so understanding uh, the context of the African-American educator uh, and, and that population is to understand what makes them choose education in the first place. Uh, when the teachers uh, before you and the principal in the school don't resemble you, as children, you don't see education as a viable option. Uh, what we learned related to what Dr. Anderson said is teachers uh, don't necessarily leave organizations, in this case schools, they leave, they leave their bosses or the principals. Well, the report makes a good point that they also choose to come in and work for people. So as we increase, uh, as we close the representation gap, as we get better at having the teachers be representative of the student population, the leaders of the student population, then that's a self, that's a positive self-perpetuating type of systemic structure. We're going to increase the likelihood that we're going to improve representation. Representation aside, how does it matter? The report does a great job of pointing out that one of the ways the principles matter uh, are in ensuring that students get opportunity, they get access to things like gifted services. They get access to uh, advanced academic courses. Um, that's how those things matter. I was just gonna follow on to say that I think that you know it's really important to go back to what Dr. Gonzalez just said, because he is he's absolutely right that there has been historical precedent about children of color not seeing themselves in the front of classrooms and not seeing themselves in the front office. We know that after Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, many, many teachers of color were driven from the profession. And so now we are reaping the whirlwind of having that happen 60 years ago. So that is part of this dilemma that we are that we are now privy to, which is that we don't have enough people of color who have maintained teaching as a profession of aspiration. Uh, we know that right now only 5% of our teaching workforce is African-American, 1.2% is Black men. And so we've got a challenge just in terms of trying to get people of color to consider education. And when you think about it, for a minute, and, and I had not considered this, but when you think about it, it's a challenge when children are not looking at themselves in schools and classrooms and they're trying to find their space. And teaching does not look aspirational because the people that are in the front of those classrooms often are antagonistic for some of the students. And when they don't see themselves represented in a positive light, it makes teaching less 
of, of, an, of an ideal profession for them to pursue. I'd like to jump in on that because um, I want to endorse everything that's been said about representation uh, and, and come to two other dimensions of that that this report points out that I think are a huge contribution. One of them, first and foremost, is that we are, in fact, increasing the number of uh, Black and Latino principals, but we're not keeping up with the growth of the student population, and the gap is actually growing, and it's particularly growing, as Richard points out, particularly growing on the Latino side. Chicago, for example, today, our largest population group is as uh, Latinx kids, and um, this simply wasn't true 20 years ago. And so, at, and the principal pipeline, uh, if I can use that that term, is uh, it just doesn't have very many uh, Latinx teachers uh, in uh, entering that principal pipeline. So that takes us to the second point. It's not just a question of what the kids see in front of them in the class, although that's absolutely relevant. It's also a question, and this is where the principal and the equity uh, cycle here of this report become important, I think. It's also a question of how many high school students are we graduating who are prepared to go to college in the first place in each of these major population groups. If we're doing a poor job of educating those kids academically, they will never become principals because they won't become teachers because they won't graduate from college. And what we find is that a a far smaller proportion of black and brown kids are entering college in the first place. And for any population group, Asian, black, white, Hispanic, your, your A plus students aren't going into teaching by and large. Your top swath, your top tier of students are being counseled into other professions. Well, if that's true of black and brown kids, and it is, there isn't a second tier of those kids because we simply don't have the depth of bench for black and brown kids going to and graduating from college. So in other words, it's not just representation, although that matters a lot. It's also how well are we educating our kids in pre-K through 12 so that they can someday be the teachers that we need. It starts that early. And I'll go back to early childhood, by the way. Um, that is to say that uh, this has implications for early childhood policy and early childhood leadership policy as well. Well, and I, this is why we're doing a whole series on reading instruction, by the way. And if and to your point, uh, two weeks ago, we had Alfred Tatum on the, on the podcast, and he was specifically talking about that issue. And so these things all kind of work together in, in, a, in, some kind of synergy, I guess, is the right word. Um, but it, uh, but this question of representation, of making sure that people are, uh, uh, you know, educated in order to go to college, these are questions that we've been grappling with for, you know. Before Brown. Since Brown. Uh, right, since, well, exactly. Since, since we had school schools. started. Yeah, since we had schools, basically. Since schools started. And what it seems to me that we have to get to is understanding what, so what is the most powerful lever of, of improvement, right? So one of the things that I think is so important about this issue of school leadership is it puts the right lever in the right hands, right? You know, what's important? Is it High quality materials? Well, of course, high quality materials are important. What's important? Teachers, of course, they're important. But marshalling all those things, marshalling how you use time, how you collaborate, how you marshal the community's support, those are school leaders. And I, you're right, Dr. Anderson, to worry about like making this a Superman issue. We. There are only so many supermen, superwomen in the world, and most of them aren't going to become principals, right? They're going to do something else. Well, but the challenge is not that they won't become principals. They don't stay as principals. So the challenge is that when you find people who are highly talented and they get the training and they get the support and they finally have the resources, then we pull them out of schools and we put them in central office or we put them in advocacy organizations. And so we don't have the long-term benefit. You get better. It's just like, you know, making chicken noodle soup. It gets better over time. It can be good in the first 25 minutes, but if you let that soup sit and stew, you're really going to have something knock 
a knockout product the next day. We don't allow our principals enough time to sit and stew. And when you consider that the average principal has seven years of experience, and then they're either going to, to the central office or they're going to another school, perhaps in another district, or they're leaving the field entirely, we've got a challenge because we have not made the principalship important enough for people to stay. And so we have this image of the principal as savior, especially in our urban communities, that they come in, they swoop in with their cape on, they turn everything around, they fix everything, they fire all the staff and hire all new, better teachers. And in three years, they've got everything back on track. And then they're on to the next thing, right? They're on to a doctorate program so that they can become superintendent or they can go to another advocacy organization where they can tell other people how to do this job. So it is a very big challenge that we have in terms of trying to figure out how we can keep good principles in the seat. Now, it's a problem in all schools, in particular in our urban schools. But what we're starting to see is even in our suburban schools that we're starting to have a big churn because as students begin to, students of color, begin to go out into some of the suburban schools and and become a larger part of that demographic as well. Now those districts are also trying to recruit with more diversity and the same challenge exists there as well. Dr. Gonzalez, Dr. Anderson just described kind of a culture of education that does not value keeping principals in the principalship for a long time. Is Do you agree with that? Is that what you see also? I think that the the interest and the intent is there. But I think just going back to what are the push and pull forces. So the pull force for a principal is the opportunity to lead and make a greater difference. Certainly, uh, career potential, earning potential is something else. But I, I I would still go back to why is it that they leave in the first place? What is it that's pushing them out? Is it only pull forces? The, the report gets into it, and um, this is anecdotal, but my experience in, in working locally in Connecticut and then in my time in Texas, it seems to me that systems play a big factor in what influences a principal's decision as to whether or not to leave. Superintendent turnover changes cabinets, changes reform priorities, changes the agendas, changes supervision structures. So we can think about uh, stabilizing the principalship and retaining the principalship by by emphasizing and improving systemic support. So, but what I'm hearing is teachers come and go because of principals. Principals come and go because of superintendents. And we know superintendents just come and go. Right. <laughs> I guess because of school boards. Um, so like, where do you even like, uh, I mean, that's a cycle of a problem. So where do you, where do you put your wrench in and just stop that problem? Um, was that a clear question? <laughs> it's the question of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And I think that's really the challenge that, you know, schools of education are really grappling with is you're looking at teacher shortages across the country. They're trying to figure out how do we make the profession of teaching attractive? And then you're also thinking about how we get people into the field of of leadership and and understand that we want them to be growing that profession as well and deepening the knowledge base there. I think you've got to, and I think that Dr. Tolzer is right. It goes all the way back to pre-K. We need to be building up from the earliest years, students who want to become educators and identifying those students early enough that we can support them throughout their early education years into the second and post-secondary years. And then think about how we can help to get them into those seats and help to keep them in those seats. I think if if we continue to make the other thing that, that I'd say is that we have made teaching a disposable career. We've made it a stepping stone career. And that's also a challenge when you have teachers who are able to walk out of the the classroom after a few years and say, well, I've done that. Now I'm going to go to something else. Well, it doesn't inspire confidence in those who stay, those who choose to stay, because it says that those teachers are just uh, they're just there to be able to get to their next destination. I'd I'd like to. uh try to draw together a couple threads from uh, the last few comments. I want to draw together um, 
Annette's remark about uh, the extent to which principals are valued together with the issue of retention uh, to Karen's question of what do you do? Because I think that there's a policy question at heart there. So I wanna, I wanna go back first and foremost to, uh, to a claim that I think uh, is ambiguous enough in its original uh, formulation. Uh, and that's the Leithwood claim that uh, that Wallace Foundation has often cited because, and I must say, it's the it's regarded generally as the single most cited claim ever in the history of school leadership research. And that's the Leithwood claim that principals are the second most in school uh, most important in school factor in influencing student learning outcomes. Um, this report goes a long way to to helping us rethink that claim. Um, that claim in some ways, as this report says, under, undervalues and underestimates the impact of the principal. And the way that we've said it for many years in our own program is, if teaching quality and instructional quality is the first most important variable in school for student learning outcomes, you won't get that variable at scale unless you have high quality school leadership. And therefore, the second most important variable is necessary to get the first most important variable. So what's really most important? And this, this I must say, to, to Leithwood's credit, he came out with a piece that I don't think is cited in this particular report. Leithwood came out in 2019. Uh, and this report's first uh, draft came out in 2020, and it may be that Leithwood's paper came out a little bit too late to use it. If somebody finds it in there and I didn't, then I apologize. But Leithwood revisited his own 2004 claim in 2019 and said, hey, um, it's more complicated than the way I said it in the first place. And this report really nails that. And it basically says school principalship is the single most cost-effective lever that we have to improve student learning outcomes in schools, precisely because it affects the entire school culture and climate, and it affects the quality of teaching and teacher retention in a school. And we know that teacher retention and school learning outcomes are importantly related. So this brings me to say, one of the areas that needs further research, and Annette raised this one, that we don't see hit heavily in this report is what are the variables that influence principal retention? Because we know that although a principal can have impact on school culture and climate in year one, and we know that principals can start to actually affect quality of instruction and instructional practices by their second year, um, it really takes a few years before you begin to change and reculture the instructional climate of a school. And if you haven't recultured the instructional climate of a school, you haven't changed that school in the ways that really are gonna pay off in student learning outcomes. So I wanna endorse what Annette is saying about the importance of retaining principals. That wasn't heavily hit in this report. Um, there are some 25 mentions of retention that are all teacher retention issues, which are absolutely critical. But we do need to see more research on, on issues of principal retention and what are the policies at the district and state level that really have an impact on principal retention. So I'll conclude by making a remark about state policy. Um, as long as we keep repeating over and over, principals are the second most important variable, I think we're undermining the extent to which state legislatures and state agencies pay attention to the principalship. I think that this report hits, it, hits a better note when it says, essentially, this is the most cost-effective lever we have to improve student learning at scale. That's the note that I think we need to hit with state legislatures and with, and with policymakers at the district and state level, because there are policies that can be put in place. Um, we're demonstrating this in Chicago, uh, where we have one particular network of principals that has an average retention rate of over eight years, approximately double the national average. We have other networks in the city that have less than a four-year retention rate, less than. So why is it that some of these networks, in fact, are having greater retention rates than others? These are policy issues that we can look into and investigate. So A, more research is needed, but B, we need to see better policy at the state level. And our studies of state policy show us that states are all over the place with, the, with their policies that do or do not support strong principal development, uh, strong principal preparation and strong principal retention. Okay, that was a little bit long, but Karen, you wanted to say something, yeah. Well, that is, that is your, you know, that is your uh, <laughs> sermon, right? <laughs> 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 right? That's your sermon. I mean, 
So Dr. Gonzalez and Dr. Anderson, are you seeing policy changes at your in the states you are, so Connecticut and Maryland, are you seeing policy changes that will improve the issue, improve the question of uh, principal recruitment, hiring, uh, development, and retention? Or is it still, are we still kind of back in the, in the Stone Ages on that? I, I will say that the policy environment has improved uh, over the last 10 years in the state of Connecticut. That doesn't necessarily mean that the legislative policy or the regulations have changed, but the policy environment has changed certainly in terms of the way that the actors, the key actors and institutions are working differently, collaboratively to make things work different, acknowledging that something needs to be done. Um, but that's that's all that I can say honestly about what's happening in our state. Well, so you mean people are talking about it? Is people that what are you talking, mean? people are trying yeah. to problem solve where there are barriers. They're, they're trying to, um, you know, break down those barriers, to figure out workarounds, to make things easier, trying to communicate. Um, and, and that's significant because, you know, not everyone in the not everyone at the universities can fix everything. Not everyone at the Department of Ed can fix everything. To a certain extent, you can only collaborate and make things work better if you cannot change the policy itself. So the, the policy in terms of normative practice is what I'm getting, is what I'm saying that the policy environment is improving and making things better within the structures of the legislation and the regula regulation that exists. I would just follow what Dr. Gonzalez has said to, to say. I think there's much more focus right now on improving pathways into teacher education than supporting nascent school leaders. And I think that that's deliberate because, you know, we've had such a dependence on traditional teacher preparation programs. And many of those programs right now are struggling because they don't have the numbers. And when you think about the role of higher education, in training both future teachers as well as aspiring school leaders, as Dr. Gonzalez just said, that process does not move quickly. And trying to align the work between state departments of education as well as higher education to get those levers moving, that's not a quick process. So I think there's been much more focus right now on the teacher prep piece of this conversation. Does it mean that districts have not been inventive and thought very creatively and innovatively about how to respond to this? No, they have. And you're also seeing that there are some external partnerships. So, you know, everywhere I've seen it, uh, University of Arkansas, for example, they have an equity-focused program that they're using to try to attract teachers. You've got the uh, Call Me Mr. program at, Clem at Clemson that is also working to do that. And then we've just seen that uh, the Center for Educator De Black Educator Development is also um, planning to recruit 21,000 teachers um, of color, particularly males. So we know that there are these efforts to try to get more teachers into the pipeline, which we hope would eventually impact the leadership pipeline. But I don't know that right now there is a direct lever to improving the principal pipeline in and of itself. Um, and so I think that's why this Wallace work continues to be really important. I think it's important that Wallace has continued to stay in the school leadership space as they continue to study and commission uh, research around this topic because there just is not enough happening. But the other thing that I would also say on top of that is that we have to remember that we are on the backside of this whole teacher reform movement that came out of an accountability movement that came out of No Child Left Behind where we pushed so many teachers and school leaders out of schools because we were using accountability as the watchword. So that also is another reason why teaching and leadership became less attractive for people because they actually, if you were in a school during those years, if you were leading a school, you actually saw colleagues who were impacted by these efforts to evaluate out, as they call it, people that were thought not to be so strong or to, you know, we can replace one quote unquote, bad teacher with a 
better teacher. And so instead of pouring more resources into supporting teachers and growing them, there was this notion that a quality teacher was going to be heralded, but if they were not a quality teacher, we were going to get rid of them. And that has also had a downstream detrimental impact on our capacity to grow not only the teacher leadership ranks, but subsequently our our school leadership ranks. Yeah, so I'd like to to comment on that and then make a connection back to something else that Dr. Anderson said. Understanding that and understanding how principles matter, how they come into a building, whether or not they listen, and what that looks like and what they listen for, but most importantly, what they use that information to turn around and do. Do they turn around and support the practice of teachers? Do they help them grow? Do they connect dots? Do they remove barriers? Do they emphasize a subtle but incredibly significant point that parent engagement is not about head counts? It's not about meeting, attending meetings, but it's about the engagement of parents in their children's learning. And it's in, in involving them and including them as partners in the education of, of their own children and the children in that school. We can do better. Now we know that we need to do better. Everyone's been working at it. But what I'm really interested in uh, that they pointed out is we don't know. They did a, the, the authors of the study did a great job of pointing out the difference of the impact of a principal at the 25th percentile versus a 75th percentile. Now, what we don't know, because, and they acknowledged it is, what's the difference between those two individuals? What do they look like? What do they do differently? We need research to understand better what that 75th percentile principle looks like and what the pipeline experiences are that get them there. So that way, when they enter, they are more inclined to engage in practices that are productive and supportive to the teachers and to the students. It helps districts understand what the professional development is that they need to provide the people in their talent pools, and then systemically how to go work about supporting those folks, keeping them, so that way they so that way they will succeed. Well, that raises. The wor- I mean, Dr. Anderson, you, you kind of gave me courage to bring my question back. <laughs> I, was, I was not going to ask this, but, but one of the things that happened when, when all the research came out about how important teachers were, what that led to was what you talked about, this sort of like, okay, good teacher, bad teacher. Let's get rid of the bad teachers and um, uh, keep the good teachers. And we'll bring in this cavalry of new good teachers. Well, turns out, there's not really a cavalry anywhere. We've got the teaching force we've got, right? So what do we do to help those teachers be better teachers? And I have been in, yeah, I mean, I've been going to high-performing, rapidly improving schools now for 15 years. And when I talk to teachers, they'll say, before this principle, I was not a good teacher. With this principle, I am a good teacher. So there are things that principals do to to organize schools in such a way that improves the performance of teachers, right? So um, what I worry about, about saying, well, principles are so important, is will we repeat that error? Will we repeat the good principle, bad principle, instead of thinking along the lines of what Dr. Gonzalez was just saying, what is it that helps principles be better principles and helps them, uh, you know, uh, uh, move a school forward without sort of going, well, you're a crappy principal and we need to get rid of you. And, which is not to say there weren't terrible teachers and there aren't terrible principals who really shouldn't be in the job at all, but that's probably a minority. People, like, it's hard to become a principal. You don't wanna be a crummy principal, you wanna be a good principal. What are the conditions under which we can help people be better principals? Dr. Tozer, you had your hand up, but I. <laughs> yeah, just two or three things, because, you know, we've, uh, 
we've been wrestling with this in Chicago and it, and really in the last six years, it's, it's begun to become a much more national issue, which is what does good principal supervision look like? And I want to go back down to what we already understand about classrooms and kids. Uh, good teachers aren't teachers who simply sort their students into high performing and low performing. They're teachers who develop the capacity of every kid in the classroom. Similarly, our message to our new principals is adult learning in your school is job one. They're not there just to sort the good teachers out from the bad teachers. They're there to help every single teacher become a really good teacher. Now, there are some teachers that aren't going to develop, and that's important to recognize, but it's not the majority of them. It's a small minority in our experience in one of the more difficult uh, uh, teaching environments in the country, Chicago Public Schools. And then thirdly, similarly, we ought not be in the business of sorting out the good principles from the bad. Um, remember Linda Darling-Hammond once said, we'll never fire our way to Finland. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, trading on this notion that Finland had at that time the highest student achievement uh, scores in the, in the world. We have to develop our way uh, to, to better student learning outcomes, better instructional quality, and finally better leadership quality. So the extent to which our recent studies over the last six years, um, since in 2015, the Council for Chief State School Officers developed its principal supervision standards, in the last half dozen years, we're seeing more and more attention paid to how do we develop the quality of principals? How do we make the principalship supportive and developmentally so they don't A, get promoted out or B, burned out? And um, and this is how we can build school cultures and climates with principals who themselves are adult learners. I think that's the commitment that every single district has to make, so. And, and I would, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add that on, on top of what Dr. Tolles just said, I think that was a brilliant assessment of where we need to go. But I also think that we should be thinking about just like we have board certified teachers that they kind of denote that there's this extra effort that they have put into their craft. We need to think about how we can delineate these high quality and distinguish these high quality principles. And maybe we have junior principals and senior principals to kind of denote this, the principals who have really examined their craft, who have really done the reflective work, who have really shown impact because they can become exemplars. We need more exemplar principals to show novice principals what they need to know to grow the way. So I think part of what our challenge is, is that the way that the system is currently organized, it does not reward expertise it rewards time on task. And so what happens is that people get- And that's get true at every level, at right? Every yeah. level right. The students, teachers, so the whole to, thing. Exactly, yeah, and we need to rethink that model if we're going to have a different approach to growing and keeping the, the best people in the field. That's a terrific point. And I want to go back to uh, a term that, Dr. Tozer used earlier when he said network. Um, if it's less about competition and survival of the fittest, and it's more about a network and a community uh, pushing forward together and bringing everyone up together, then that's what will turn around and be done in the schools with the teachers and for the children. And can you imagine a district where instead of feeling like you're being pit against your colleagues, to, to show growth or to, to demonstrate that you have mastered whatever the latest test scores are, that you are being brought in to show and examine what the kinds of pieces of uh, a portfolio are for a principal who's doing an extraordinary job so that they can see it. You need to be able to see it in order to be able to reenact it in your own practice. So I think if we had a plan to kind of push out some senior principals or some expert principals, because it takes about it takes about six to 10 years to go from being a, a novice principal to being an expert principal. And along the way, there should be some milestones that we can expect to see that can be evaluated. They can be you know, looked at and thought through, but then they should not, principals should not be penalized for being at one place or another. They should be allowed to engage the work and think in their own practice about how they can grow themselves and their schools and their teachers so that they can move along that continuum. That should be the goal, not moving out. 
We've made moving out of the school the goal. So that I just want to just to just to reiterate this. We've made if you are a successful principal, there's no place for you to go. You've got to leave in order to be validated in your worth as a good principal. And that's problematic. Yeah. So how do we take what we're all talking about in this new landscape of leading and learning and teaching, you know, given that this past school year was everyone's first year in this crazy landscape of COVID teaching and learning and and all, how do we go forward taking everything you've all talked about, the importance of school leadership, the redesign necessary, because we're still going to have students that are going to be in person. Some are going to be virtual. How do we support the kind of leadership that's necessary so that education moves forward and kids are still learning in a way that speaks to them. We've learned a lot about learning this year, Um, how some kids learn better virtually, some are doing better in person, the need for social emotional development and and support. How do we take all of that and what we know about strong leadership from from the Wallace Report and move it forward to the coming school year for the next several years? Because we're gonna see these effects of what happened this past year for the next few years coming out. One thing that I would say is I would I would pick up on Annette's insight that in fact already exists widely in in more advanced areas of the private sector, which is that uh, people need developmental trajectories, um, and that we'd simply uh, I mean for a long time we've talked about teaching as a flat profession or the principalship as a flat profession. And we, we're learning over time that, um, and we've we've had some really good success with this in Chicago in recent years, that you can make leadership and career opportunities available for principals in a staged way so that the only way up isn't out. And, um, and like I say, this is something that the private sector has much more experience with than we do in, this, in the school district sector. And this is, this is one of the areas for us to look at. But I'll also come back to, to uh, Richard's comment about networking and networks. We, we, nobody disagrees anymore that it's important to have third graders work in groups, that a part of their learning should be social learning. Uh, for a long time, that was a uh, <laughs> that was a new thought and a thought that many people resisted. Almost no one resists the value of social learning for third graders, eighth graders, high school kids. We've come to believe that teachers in professional learning communities can, in fact, learn and develop effectively if, in fact, it's structured the right way. Um, we haven't yet really embraced the view that principals should be part of learning networks and should be part of learning communities. We see it happening in some places, but this is a powerful way for principals to engage not only in problem identification and continuous improvement of their own work, but also in personal and professional growth too. So, and again, these are policy related. Districts can do this. Districts can make a district a learning environment for principals. And that in and of itself is one of the things that we know that uh, from job satisfaction surveys going back decades makes a job more important to keep than to lose. So I think that there are some strong signals out there that we can gather up. And again, we'll go back to the report and say, they left by saying there's more research on this stuff to be done. And I think that's the right note to leave it on. But we do, we can do some important research on, hey, what are the things that make principalship uh, positions so rewarding that principals don't want to don't want to leave? It's not like we don't have examples of this because we do have examples of this. So I think that in terms of leadership, uh, going forward, I think we need to be thinking tangibly about leadership development opportunities. Because with leadership development opportunities, we answer the question of how do we how do we keep them in position long enough to reculture an entire school and its instructional uh, quality. But we also, in fact, are developing the quality of the district uh, overall uh, by doing that. And it's. Um, um, I think that these are the next frontiers for uh, for districts and for higher ed as partners with districts as we move forward. I think what I would add to that in response to Tangi's question is that we just need to reframe what the priorities are, uh, what the metrics, the success metrics are. If we prioritize things like teacher retention, if we prioritize things like student culture, uh, school culture and climate, 
if we prioritize those things that ultimately will produce the positive outcomes that we want as much as student achievement, I'm not saying instead of as much as student achievement, then you're giving permission. It's either at the district level or at the state level through policy, you're giving the educators permission to focus on those things. And then everyone turns their uh, important uh, resources, time, money, energy towards those things. And and I would just add that, you know, back in the old and golden days, you know, when we moved from the one school, one room schoolhouse, the notion of having someone in charge was to have a principal teacher. That's what the term principal comes from, principal teacher. And I think that in this pandemic, some of that has fallen away and we've given our administrators many more tasks to do that maybe there's someone else who can can take up because we need to be sure that our principals have enough time to engage instruction. That's their most important area of impact. And if they're trying to figure out who's on the hybrid list and who's on the remote list and who's coming two days a week, that takes them away from their job as principal teacher. And we need them to be able to get into those classrooms, to be able to model. And so it's really going to be important that as the fall rolls around, that we rethink how we're allocating staff, because there's a lot of people who can also do some of those additional roles. Maybe it's bringing on an additional um, assistant principal uh, or an educational associate that can work with those those kind of managerial tasks. But we need to get the role of principal solidified as principal teacher. And Dr. Anderson, don't forget contact tracing because educators from assistant principals up to superintendents have become contact tracers. Well, that's actually what Tanji and I have been doing. We've been talking to a number of educators. Last week, um, we were talking with a principal who was planning to open uh, this month, right? So over the course of the month, there's dots on the sidewalk outside the uh, literal, literal dots, dots to keep kids from <laughs> congregating. There's the bus schedules. There's the door, all the doors that have been locked because of school shooters now have to be used so that you don't have kids crowding. I mean, there's just a million, well, a million may be a, an overstatement, but there are thousands of decisions. And a good principal is going to do that in collaboration with other people that's all incredibly time consuming <laughs> and you're absolutely right but we have in in this country if you follow school budget you know debates so often it's like uh we're going to keep all the money in the classroom and no money for outside the classroom and what that really means is not you know we're not going to pay for administration and what that means is you're not going to play, pay for leadership. You're just going to, you know, focus your resources solely on teachers and materials because nothing else is important because we really haven't understood the importance of leadership as a nation. And I'm wondering if, like, do we think this report will change the, na- you know, the, the national conversation the Wall- I know the Wallace Foundation would love to say, yes, this will do it, right? This will be the thing that changes the national conversation. I'm not, I don't know, will it? Uh, you guys You guys are in that national conversation. Yeah, Steve, what do you think? You're, you've been pushing the national conversation for years. Well, you remember in 96, 97, when uh, What Matters Most, Teaching in America's Future came out. Linda Darling-Ham and led uh, that that report. Um, there's no question that had an impact on the national conversation. It's it more or less laid to rest uh, the question of whether teachers make a difference in student learning outcomes or not, because there was serious question about that. You know, it's like the the because of the data, particularly the Coleman studies of the 60s, the general view was neighborhoods determine student outcomes, families determine student outcomes, not teachers. That conversation shifted so dramatically after 1997 that in fact it led to 
uh, NCLB and some of its excesses and some, some of the serious problems of accountability that NCLB put on the table. By the way, the NCLB legislation virtually didn't mention principles at all. It was all teacher preparation, teacher accountability, teacher quality, and so forth. Um, I would say that this document by itself won't have the same impact that Linda Darling Hammond and the National Commission on Teaching America's Future had. I do think, however, it's an important contribution to what Richard earlier described as a growing conversation of recognition that principles really do matter. I, I don't think that this report's contribution will be insignificant. I think it will be significant. And that put together with other studies, Leithwood's own remarks from 2019, his revisitation of his earlier studies, together with a, a massive work that Wallace Foundation has been putting out for the past, uh, I'll just pick the last five years, although it's over 20 years now of their work. I think that what we're doing is we're pushing the uh, professional and public consciousness of the importance of principles in a way that this report will make a contribution to. I would just go back to a statement that you made earlier about which lever is the most important to push. And I, and I think in my wrestling with that question, I just don't know that there is one. I think it is trying to get all of the right levers in place in tandem so that they can all be pushed at the same time to execute excellence. Um, so if I can build on, again, what Dr. Tolzer just said, you know, we this is knowledge that we've had for a long time, but we keep building our knowledge in silos. And so part of the challenge, I think, of even this latest addition to the research is that it will be offered in a silo. And I would hope that we could kind of think about it more in tandem with all the other efforts that are going on to improve the work in schools uh, and, not, and not in isolation. That's a terrific point. That is a terrific point. It is not just teacher quality. It is not just preparation. It is not just professional development, recruiting, placement. Those things, going back to the network idea, are connected. They are interconnected and part of the system. And uh, it has to be thought about that way. And the work needs to follow accordingly. That seems like a great place to sort of, you, you all just summed it all up, but this, this conversation I think has really demonstrated how in some ways naughty this question is and how complex and nuanced it is and yet how, um, how important it is. Dr. Tozer? Yeah, I, I, I gave a shout out to Wallace uh, a moment ago because uh, not just this report, but the work they've been doing uh, over the last 20 years and particularly the research that they've mounted on the website over the last five. We also have to say something about Ed Trust's contribution to this. Ed Trust was a big influence on me 25 years ago as they were developing, um, I'm gonna go to Annette's systemic lens and Richard's systemic lens, as they were developing this P12, P16, even P20 perspective. And it's because we care about preschoolers that we have to care about principles, right? It's because we care about principles that we have to care about higher ed and so forth. And so it, I think that uh, ed trust has to be recognized for the fact that you guys keep surfacing this stuff and keep putting it out into public forums um, that actually are getting national attention. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to participate in that because you guys have stayed the course and, uh, and it's going to have a, a long-term impact without a doubt. Well, Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll thank you on behalf of Ed Trust. Um, the, I, and this is actually why I think there has been a partnership. I, just to be fully transparent, the Wallace Foundation is supporting this podcast financially. And the reason uh, there has been a synergy, Ed Trust, I don't know if uh, people know this, but Ed Trust is a little prickly about who it takes its money about its money from. Um, it doesn't take money from just anybody for anything, right? Um, but there is a there is a confluence of thinking about how what is important, what kinds of things are important to bring equity to uh, education for all children, particularly for children of color, children living in poverty. We haven't explicitly called that out, but that underlies every single thing everybody in this uh, conversation has said. 
Um, so I want to thank you all for participating in this. And this has been just a fabulous conversation. So that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. I hope you all found this as fascinating a conversation as I did. We want to thank Dr. Anderson, Dr. Gonzalez, and Dr. Tozer for taking the time to have this important conversation on school leadership. We want to thank everyone at EdTrust who supports this podcast, including Takira Winfield-Dixon, Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Jack Fleming, and Keith Curry. Thanks to Mike Patillo of Tonal Park, who records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for its financial support of this podcast. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.